The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. If there were 217 votes to say, no, like we actually think that McHenry should be able to do this, that the, the person acting as the speaker pro tem should have this power and are willing to vote that way on the floor of the House, um, that would also have the effect of um, establishing a precedent. In fact, it would be a little bit more forceful because it, we would have an actual vote to look at and say, no, this number of House members voted to say this is the way that the Speaker Pro Tem uh, gets to exercise power. So like if listeners may or may not um, have followed closely the mechanics of using the nuclear option in the Senate um, to establish new precedent in the Senate. I'm not saying this would be nuclear in like the way that it's, you know, a profound change the way the House works. Um, but it's the same mechanism that involves basically a majority of members being willing to vote to establish a new precedent. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for October 13th, 2023. The past two weeks have been a historical one for the House of Representatives. Last week, a band of dissident Republicans voted with House Democrats to remove Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, leaving the office vacant. In his stead, a never-before-used House rule turned to a secret list of temporary successors that identified Congressman Patrick McHenry as the new Speaker pro tempore. But what exactly he is able to do in this role, and what it means for Congress's ability to pass much-needed legislation, is far from clear. To discuss this new predicament, I sat down with Brookings Institution Senior Fellow and Lawfare Senior Editor Molly Reynolds. We talked about the history of the rule behind McHenry's appointment, what authority its authors intended for it to provide, and what it means for Israel, Ukraine, and the pending government shutdown. It's the Lawfare Podcast for October 13th. What the heck is a speaker pro tempore? So Molly, over the last two weeks, we have seen a pretty extraordinary set of events historical events take place in the House of Representatives, unprecedented, kind of virgin territory in regards to how we're operating and the rules that guide us, as I understand it, uh, wherein we have now no longer Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, who was removed uh, from the House by Democrats and a number of Republicans, but instead have a Mr. McHenry, who is something called a Speaker pro tempore or pro tempore, depending on how well you want to pronounce your Latin. Tell me a little bit about how we got here before we really dig into what this new status quo means. Sure. So... Last week, uh, we saw in the House, for the first time, um, the successful use of what 
folks refer to as the motion to vacate. It's actually like a resolution offered under the uh, as a question of privileges of the House to declare the speakership vacant. But basically, it's the first time in history that um, a group of House members successfully used this particular procedural tool to remove a speaker from office. Um, there was, in 1910, a like, very serious threat um, to, um, to Speaker Cannon uh, using this tool that he um, sort of successfully put off. We saw in 2015 some threats to John Boehner um, using this tool that were part of kind of the overall mix of things that eventually led to him resigning the speakership. But this was the first time that a group of Republicans were voting with um, all, uh, I don't want to say working with, voting with um, all of the Democrats in the House um, actually used this mechanism to declare um, the speakership um, vacant. That group of dissident Republicans was led by um, Matt Gates of Florida. And so we saw this um, uh, vote in the House. Um, and once the uh, speakership was declared vacant, there was this moment where the person who was presiding over the House for the purposes of that vote sort of steps aside and up the steps um, walks Patrick McHenry, Republican of um, North Carolina, uh, who is now, as you said, the Speaker Pro Tem. Um, and he uh, is the Speaker Pro Tem as a result of this rule that it, we're going to talk about in um, more depth in a minute, but this rule um, that was adopted by the House in 2003 uh, as a continuity reform. So this idea that in the event of some sort of mass incapacitating event um, where the speaker uh, was, God forbid, dead or otherwise incapacitated, the House would want someone to be able to um, assume uh, the speakership temporarily and guide the House to the selection of a new speaker. At the beginning of a Congress, when a speaker is elected, as we saw McCarthy uh, elected in uh, the beginning of this year, uh, that speaker submits a list of um, individuals um, who would be the speaker pro tem in these sort of extraordinary circumstances where the speakership is vacant. The elected speaker submits that list to the clerk where it just sort of sits secretly. Uh, um, it's not a public list um, until and uh, there's, a, there's a circumstance where um, the speakership is vacant. And that um, we saw that for the first time last week. I am utterly intrigued by this rule, not least because to give away my disciplinary and regional uh, biases, this is almost the same mechanism the Sultanate of Oman uses to handle royal succession. Uh, so it is a real, Scott, real I have had weird- a lot of co- I've had a lot of conversations about this rule um, in the past two weeks. You are the first person to tell me that it bears resemblance to something involving the Sultan of Oman. It is fascinating. I'm so intrigued by it. Oman, wonderful country, worth visiting. Really interesting political system, to say the least. Um, but we'll, fo- we'll stay focused on the house in this time. That's, that's a subject for another podcast. I want to dig into this rule. But before I do... Tell us a little bit about McHenry. Like, who who is this man? Why would he be at the top of McCarthy's list? I guess probably at the beginning of the Congress when McCarthy presumably submitted this list. Although I guess maybe he could have updated it. Although it's not clear to me the rule provides for updating it, updating the list. Uh, so I'm not sure what the practice is there. You know, why would he stand out? Because he's someone who was not on my radar, at least, as someone who is a you know observer of Congress, not at the depth of you and true congressional experts, but I feel like I know most of the major actors and he was not somebody who was on my radar previously. 
Yeah, so I, I actually have an answer to your question about the possibility of updating the list, um, which oh, is that good. an elected speaker can do that mid-Congress. We know that in part because in 2014, uh, so when the speaker um, files this list with the clerk, there's a sort of note in the congressional record that he's done so. It does not say who the people on the list are, but it, it notes that um, it has happened. Um, and in the middle of 2014, you can see in the congressional record um, – John Boehner submitting a new list um, to the clerk. And I think we have to assume that that was a list that he updated after um, Eric Cantor, who had been in the House Republican leadership, lost a primary Mm -hmm. uh, for his House seat and then resigned from um, Congress mid-year. So it is possible to um, to update the list, uh, just to sort of put that on the table. But in terms of who McHenry is, so um, McHenry is the chair of the House Financial Services Committee. Um, He is kind of a longtime McCarthy ally. A couple of things that are are notable is that um, about a year and a half ago, so he's sort of been one of these people who um, has been in um, in the mix for possible um, Republican leadership positions. Between 2014 um, and the end of 2018, he was the um, chief deputy whip. Uh, so like he has some history in Republican uh, House leadership. But about a year and a half ago, when asked if he was interested in running for leadership, if Republicans took a majority in the midterms, he said, no, he was not interested in running for an elected leadership position. He would much prefer to uh, become the chair of the House Financial Services Committee. And the reason he didn't want to run for elected leadership is because he did not want to be responsible for trying to whip votes on an increase to the debt limit. Um, so he was you know, quite prescient in the challenges that were um, anticipating the challenges that were coming um, for the House Republican conference. This spring, though, when there were negotiations over an increase to to the debt limit, he was uh, one of the House Republicans kind of lead negotiators on that. So that I think we could tell from from that um, episode that he was someone that sort of McCarthy trusted. So in that sense, um, it's not terribly surprising that he was at the top of um, of McCarthy's list as someone who would assume this particular responsibility um, in the event of a vacancy. Okay, fascinating. Uh, and and one important detail I think you omit is he is I think most well known by many people as being a committed bow tie wearer. Yes, that is true. He is he wears a bow tie quite faithfully. Something which bears directly on his credibility. Although which way that goes <laughs> depends on who you ask, I suppose. So let's get into this rule, which is so interesting. You mentioned already it's it was a kind of a a post nine eleven reform. Tell us about where it came from, and I'm particularly curious how they settled on such a strange mechanism. What's the logic for making it a secret? Well, we think of presidential succession, right? Like that's written out very clearly in statute. There are some questions about what whether the whole line of succession is constitutional. So there's some ambiguity there, not intended by the authors, but there was no effort to keep the order of succession a secret. Why would you do that with the speaker? Yeah, it's a good question. And there is there is history here um, that I am not especially well-versed in, but I will um, share with listeners what I know, which is that in the aftermath of September 11th, when Congress uh, really narrowly avoided um, a catastrophe with a, um, a plane, as we now know, um, headed for the U.S. Capitol, there was an effort to kind of look at some serious continuity questions um, about the operations of, of Congress. And there was a task force that was led 
by two members, uh, Representative Cox and Representative Frost, um, had a bunch of other um, House members, some of whom are still in the House, who made some recommendations about, among other things, changes to the House rules that would put Congress on, uh, particularly the House, on a better footing in the event of some sort of mass incapacitating event. And so one of those proposals was this rule. Um, around having a speaker um, pro tem. And we'll we'll talk about sort of the ways that the text of the rule can be interpreted in a second. But um, to your question about sort of why make it a secret list, I don't know what their thinking was. I've sort of assumed that it was kind of for like security reasons to, you know, if you knew who the other people on the list were and the the nature of the th- the threat being leveled against the house was like more targeted would those people become targets i don't know that's kind of the best logic that i could come up with but it the list is secret and frankly like people talked about this when the rule was adopted in 2003 and then uh, much to the chagrin of many people who care about continuity of congress we largely stopped talking about it for a long time the there have been particularly in the aftermath of january 6th and frankly in the aftermath of covid um, there have been some efforts to revive serious conversations about continuity of congress um the select committee on the modernization of the house um took a deep dive into additional continuity reforms um, in the last Congress. Uh, but largely, particularly this rule, frankly, like very few people, even people like me, um, who spend their days thinking about House rules, had not thought a lot about it um, until a couple of weeks ago when it became clear or increasingly clear that there was a serious possibility that the chair was going to be declared vacant. So let me start by reading the text, what I think is the core operational text. is kind of two sentences in here of this rule. And this is rule one, subsection eight of the House rules for the 118th Congress. And particularly, we're going to focus on subsection three. And then I'm just going to read subsection three A, uh, but you'll get what subsections B and C are kind of from context, I think. The text says, in the case of a vacancy in the office of speaker, the next member on the list described in subdivision B, that's the list that the speaker gives at the beginning of Congress or at some point during the Congress, the secret list. She'll act as speaker pro tempore until the election of a speaker or a speaker pro tempore. Pending such election, the member acting as speaker pro tempore may exercise such authorities of the office of speaker as may be necessary and appropriate to that end. So what do people make of that in terms of what authority this person actually has? Um, because necessary and appropriate is a language that's not uncommon in a statute, but it can be interpreted a lot of different ways depending on what you think is necessary and appropriate, depending on what you think the objective is of a particular statutory provision, or in this case, a rules provision. So how have people interpreted this? What is the vision about what Mr. McHenry can do now that he's, or I should say speaker pro tempore, McHenry can do now that he's in that role? Right. Um, so I'll say that the sort of pieces of this language that much of the debate that I'm about to describe um, hinges on are both that question of um, what does necessary and appropriate mean, but also what is that end in the part of the sentence that says to that end. In the sort of lead up to the chair being declared vacant and McHenry ascending to this position, there are sort of two schools of thought on how you could interpret this role. One of them was quite narrow 
And in fact, we have subsequently learned that um, this is probably like the originalist interpretation. So Jim McGovern, who's the Democratic ranking member on the House Rules Committee, has produced um, some kind of documentary evidence from the adoption of the rule that suggests that the original drafters of the rule meant for this the person acting as speaker pro tem to sort of have the authority necessary to effectuate the selection of a new permanent or temporary speaker. So to sort of guide the House to the point where the House could vote someone into the position. A much broader interpretation, which I will say is one that I held, um, and I think many other folks who think about Congress as an institution did as well, is the idea that someone acting in as the speaker, as the result of this provision of the rules, should have basically the full powers of the Speaker of the House. Um, and the logic there is that if you think back to the circumstances that created this rule, which are to say, like concern about a mass incapacitating event, that in those circumstances, you would want someone who could actually like make the house function. So say whatever the mass inc incapacitating event was, like what if that required congressional response and Congress had not yet organized itself to select a new speaker? Like you might want a someone acting as a speaker pro tem who could put a bill on the floor that would address whatever the like precipitating crisis was. So that that's um, sort of how I and I think others kind of logically thought through this question. Like I said, in the interim, since McHenry has actually ascended to this position, it has become clear that the, or I should say it's become clearer that the original drafters of the rule may well have meant for it to be used more narrowly. And also that even um, sort of separate from that question, McHenry is behaving under a much narrower interpretation of the rule. And so we can talk about sort of what the, the consequences of that are, but that is, um, that's kind of like the basic thinking here. So I think one of the more interesting parts of this is the idea that this speaker pro tempore has the authority to help guide the House towards electing a speaker pro tempore, because it says it is, uh, you know, has, can serve in this role until the election of a speaker or a speaker pro tempore. And I'm guessing that is a reference to section two of this rule, which I didn't read, um, but which also provides for the, with the approval of the House, the Speaker may appoint a member to act as a Speaker pro tempore only to sign enrolled bills and joint resolutions for a specified period of time. Is that right? And if that's the case, is that a clue for at least some of the outer limits of the authority of the Speaker pro tempore under section three? Because presumably, if he had the authority to sign enrolled bills and joint resolutions, they wouldn't have given the authority to guide this towards the election of a speaker pro tempore for that purpose? Or is that is there are there other situations where we might elect a speaker pro tempore other than in this subsection two? Yeah. So there's um there's sort of two things going on here. So sort of separately from the existence of this rule and the possibility of the chair being declared vacant or, or um, a vacancy arising because of like a mass incapacitating event or just really anything happening to uh, to the speaker. Separately, we have the ability of an elected speaker to designate a group of members as authorized to sign enrollments if like the speaker is 
not in Washington or something like that. And so um, there, and that's another sort of routine part of House operations that generally happens at the beginning of a new Congress. So like back in January, um, Kevin McCarthy like designated a list of people who could sign bills in his absence. Um, McHenry was in fact on that list. Um, and so those generally have like expanded over time. Those designations have expanded over time. So like that list covers an entire Congress uh, as far as I know now. Uh, and so we might call that like an enrolling speaker pro tem. And so that's a little bit separate from this question of like, what can McHenry do? I think one of the most important things to think about in the context of the section of the rule that provides for the um, election of either a speaker or a speaker pro tem that like what the uh, person acting under this authority can guide the House to is an election either of a permanent speaker or an elected speaker pro tem, is that that I think as we sort of talk about like with the looming overall dysfunction in the House Republican Conference about their inability to settle on a new permanent speaker, I think this idea of an elected speaker pro tem might be um, an important like possible escape hatch from the current situation in which uh, the House finds itself. We can talk a little bit more about that. But I think the in- thing that's important to remember is that like one of the things that it's, I think, pretty clear McHenry could do under the rule is guide the House to the election of someone who is only intended to be a temporary speaker. But because that person will have been put into the temporary speakership as the result of of a vote of the House, they might be on sort of stronger procedural footing than McHenry is just acting under this rule. Interesting. So what has McHenry really used this authority for so far uh, that we can get a sense of how he's interpreting it? You mentioned he's got a narrow interpretation, but we are hearing about things happening that are beyond just, you know, handling the election of a speaker. You know, most notoriously, I think we saw some retributive action come into office assignments for Nancy Pelosi and a few other senior Democrats as a reaction, uh, at least as it has been reported. I don't know if that's accurate to their role in deposing uh, Speaker McCarthy. Is that accurate? Is that reporting A? And B, is it indication that there's a little more going on here with McHenry's use of this authority than uh, just trying to get a new speaker? Yeah, so um, I think... The, as you as you note, one of the things that McHenry has done, which uh, has sort of garnered a fair amount of attention, is this decision to remove former Speaker Pelosi um, and Steny Hoyer from sort of extra office space that they were occupying in the Capitol itself. The Speaker of the House does control um, office space. And so if Kevin McCarthy had chosen to do that before he was deposed, I'm sure people would have levied the same, you know, this is an act of pettiness criticisms, but there wouldn't have been the sort of institutional questions. But is that one of his powers? So a couple things that McHenry has done. One is he has, when occupying the chair, like recognized members to make motions from the floor. Um, He has used the power to recess the House, subject to the call of the chair. Those are, again, like powers he is choosing to use. They are still consistent with a much narrower reading um, of the rule. The choice to make 
decisions about office space is consistent with a much more expansive reading of the rule. And then there are some things that he has clearly chosen not to do, most notably refer legislation to committees, which is like technically a thing for which the speaker is responsible. Um, he's elected not to do that. Um, and so that, again, is consistent with the idea that he's uh, following a narrower reading of the rule. And then there's this question about whether um, he could bring a piece of legislation to the floor um, to you know, call up legislation from the House floor. And uh, we can talk about sort of what would happen if he tried to do that. But he has clearly and repeatedly said that he does not think that is one of his powers. How sustainable that is if we remain in the sort of speaker deadlock scenario, I don't know. And we can talk more about that too. Uh, but that's kind of the landscape as it stands right now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So let's drill down on at least two aspects of the authority that kind of kind of come up in the public conversation and might come up in a more operational means. One is the question of line of succession. And here I don't mean the secret McCarthy succession for speaker. I mean the line of presidential succession under the Presidential Succession Act, which I mentioned earlier, is a statutory line of people saying, here's who's in inherits the presidency if the president and vice president are incapacitated or unavailable. It goes from speaker to president of the Senate down through cabinet members. Uh, and so the speaker is at the top of that list. But there, some have questioned or asked whether McHenry is now at the top of that list after the president and vice president. Is there a, a consensus around whether that's the case or not? And why or why not? Yeah. So um, the consensus on that is that this McHenry is not in the line of succession. And I will uh, point my go-to source on this is um, friend of the Lawfare Cinematic Universe, Brian Colt, professor at uh, law professor at Michigan State, um, who's you know a very well-respected authority on uh, these questions. And his take, and the take that I have seen from many others, is that this McHenry in his capacity as the Speaker pro tem is not not in the line of um, of succession. Do you have any do you have any sense of why or uh, what the lie is it just as a basis of what Congress's intent was admittedly in a law that was enacted fifty years before before this rule of yeah, providing for this so, status? So Brian's take on it at least is that Article Two restricts succession to officers, and that because the Speaker pro tem isn't chosen by the House, he's not an officer of the House for those purposes. 
Interesting. Interesting. And there's a separate question that's come up, and this is one that could come up operationally more realist, more not more realistically, more urgently, or on come up more plausible path. Succession could too, given something horrible, but hopefully not. Um, but that's this question of subpoena enforcement. Of course, the House is involved in a variety of different types of investigations of former President Biden's son Hunter, of a variety of actions, uh, up you know on a variety of fronts regarding the administration or a variety of other activities. Does having a gap in the leadership or a speaker pro tempore as opposed to a speaker? impact the ability of the House to pursue investigation and use the subpoena as its main investigatory tool, as it often does? Yeah. So here, I think it's helpful to distinguish between um, the issuance of subpoenas and the enforcement of them. So, um, and this is important to think about in the context of how like we differentiate what's happening now from what would have happened at the beginning of the Congress if we had continued to dead if the House had continued to deadlock on the initial election of the speaker. So at the start of a Congress, the first thing that the House does is elect a speaker. And then the next thing that the House does is adopt um, its rules. And then from the adoption of the rules is able to organize itself and assign members to committees and all that sort of thing. And so so if we had been having this like sort of a version of this crisis at the beginning of um, the Congress, if we had sort of never been able to get to yes on um, a speaker, uh, committees would have been really unable to act um, and as a result, unable to issue subpoenas. Now, however, it's we're in sort of a different posture, like the committees all exist they all have power under the rules that have been adopted by the full house. Um, those powers include subpoena power. So um, a committee could issue a subpoena. The question would be about um, sort of enforcing it in the event of um, of non-compliance uh, with the subpoena. And I think the consensus here is that if we are going with a very narrow interpretation of the speaker of McHenry's powers as speaker pro tem that that really limits the ability to enforce a subpoena in the event of noncompliance. Again, whether we get to a point where the House is itching to do that and um, we don't have an elected speaker, um, I don't know. But I think, again, if we are going with this narrow interpretation of the rule, then uh, it does seem to me that that would be something uh, that it would be hard for the House to do is to, you know, pursue enforcement as opposed to simply issue subpoenas. Now, my understanding is that at least under the the latest iterations of the House rules, which I think extends into the 118th, is that actual litigation choices, which would be the main, although not, I guess, exclusive way, but the main way you would enforce a subpoena as the House would be made by the bipartisan legal advisory group. So is the is the inability to do that or risk that they will be unable to do that a function of the fact that that body is, is a five-member body split to two between the two parties and the speaker often function as the tiebreaker? And that's the function that the speaker pro tempore will be unable to exercise? Or is there a more formal role the speaker plays separate from the blag that that they're not going to be able to step in and fill? Yeah. So um, as I understand it, there are like a couple of different ways that the House can pursue civil enforcement. One is to like have a vote of the full House. Um, I think that's become less common, but is a is an option. One is that when the House is out of session, the Speaker can directly certify criminal contempt if that's the route that we're um, that we're going, um, or as you put it, convene the bipartisan legal advisory group 
to pursue enforce civil enforcement action. Um, I think there are some open questions about whether the bipartisan legal advisory group has the power to do that on its own. We're getting to like the limits of my expertise here, but again, I think the the constraint is coming from this narrow um, interpretation and reading of the rule. So let's say McHenry does something that people say is inconsistent with the intent of this rule. We have at least one case of that, right? This removal of Pelosi and Hoyer from their offices was met with objection by Democratic members of the House. Well, I don't know if anyone's taken action to challenge it beyond kind of publicly objecting to that, that use of his authority. What is the mechanism or is there a mechanism that anyone could use to challenge how McHenry interprets and uses this? Um, how would that play out in terms of the procedures of the House? Yeah, so it depends a little bit on like what McHenry is doing. Uh, in the case of the um, sort of assigning office space, that's a little bit there's no real like formal mechanism short of just, you know, Nancy Pelosi saying, no, I'm not moving. Um, but I think more substantively, if we think about say, moving a piece of legislation on the floor. And because this is the context in which I think people have raised this, it's worth maybe using this as a hypothetical. So let's say the House wants to adopt a resolution um, declaring sort of its support for Israel in the current uh, war between Israel and Hamas. So let's say McHenry moves to bring that piece of legislation to the floor. There are two things that could happen. One is that he could take the steps necessary to do that, and no one says anything. They just sort of proceed like everything is normal, and there's no objection to him using his power in this way. That is possible because the rules of the House and the Senate, for that matter, are not self-enforcing. They rely on someone raising an active objection to say, no, you're breaking this rule. We call that a point of order. So if no one raised a point of order against McHenry doing something, then you know the House would do what it does. There would be a vote. Um, and then we would consider that pretty strong precedent for future action. This whole episode with McHenry acting under this provision of the rules is literally unprecedented in a way that few things are in Congress. Um, spent a lot of time reminding people that there's very little new under the sun um, in uh, the world of Congress, but this is one of those things. Um, and so we would see we'd see the, the sort of choice by the House to kind of stand down and let McHenry exercise the power in that way as um, the setting of a, of a precedent. If someone raised an objection from the floor, said, no, McHenry can't actually do this because um, he is not the elected speaker, the, there would be a ruling um, from the chair, and then someone could appeal that ruling. Um, and so if there were 217 votes to say, no, like we actually think that McHenry should be able to do this, that the, the person acting as the Speaker pro tem should have this power and are willing to vote that way on the floor of the House, um, that would also have the effect of um, establishing a precedent. In fact, it would be a little bit more forceful because it, we would have an actual vote to look at and say, no, this number of House members voted to say this is the way that the Speaker pro tem uh, gets to exercise power. So like if listeners may or may not um, have followed closely the mechanics of using the nuclear option in the Senate um, to establish new precedent in the Senate. I'm not saying this would be nuclear in like the way that it's, you know, 
a profound change the way the house works. Um, but it's the same mechanism that involves basically a majority of members being willing to vote to establish a new precedent. So that gets to this question of what the significance of what McHenry is doing now, what its significance is for the future, because it is this sort of virgin role. You know, you mentioned the the role it plays in establishing a precedent. You know, what is the impact those precedents will have? I mean, how is what he doing today? How might that echo in future cases where maybe we see a replay of what's happened with Speaker McCarthy, where political conditions lead to a vacancy in the Speaker, or maybe there is an event like the type anticipated by this rule where there's a national crisis, the Speaker might be incapacitated or killed, and we return to this rule to try and get the House up and running. Uh, How would those precedents, how binding might these precedents be, how significant might they be in shaping that subsequent practice and perceptions of the legitimacy of individuals in those roles in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really important question. And we know from literally centuries of history that, you know, the House and the Senate are both, um, you know, tend to be quite deferential to um, to their precedents. And so this is, I think, one of the things that concerns folks like me the most about what is happening right now, which is that even if the, you know, originalist interpretation of this Rule one, clause eight, is that the person acting as McHenry is now, that their job is to effectuate the election of a new speaker. Even if that's true, I don't have to like it. Like, I don't have to think that that's good for the, for real continuity questions in the House, particularly in the event of a real mass incapacitating event where the speakership is, is vacant because the speaker is dead. In that situation, I think there's a, like really strong normative argument that you would want someone acting under the authority that McHenry is currently acting, who is more than just sort of a moderately empowered clerk. You would want, I I think there's an argument that you would want someone with more power to do things more than just elect a new um, a new speaker. And so I think at the end of the day, I hope that after all of this kind of shakes out, the House might consider like revisiting this rule and perhaps distinguishing between sets of circumstances that generate a vacancy. I don't know exactly what that would look like, but I think it has illustrated for us one of the kind of real challenges of thinking about congressional rules, which is the challenge of unintended consequences. You never know, sort of, or you can't always know the circumstances under which a rule will first become relevant. And I think what we're experiencing right now illustrates that really well. Like this rule was imagined for one set of circumstances. The set of circumstances in which it was first invoked are not those. Um, We have not had some sort of um, mass incapacitating event. We have had a sort of political crisis in the House Republican Conference that has uh, generated both a vacancy in the office of the speaker and at present, at least as of the time of this recording, an inability to settle on a new speaker. And so that's, I think that's always a cautionary tale in thinking about um, procedural change um, in the House and Senate is that you don't know what's going to happen in the future and how the rules that you write at one period are going to become relevant in a future period. 
So this is a really interesting way to think about these congressional rules, but it's a little sanitized, right? Like we tend to, when we are in our parliamentary procedure modes, to say, oh, here's how this rule is interpreted, and we assume precedents matter, and that's the number one decider, uh, and that you know people are looking at the rule and thinking about it. But of course, as with the law, that's not really how real life actors always or even usually approach these rules. These rules are, you know, one factor on a political landscape guiding decisions with different incentives. So what instrumental uses do we see for these rules? How have they come into play? How has this rule played into the broader political sort of scenario? And what might that tell us about how these rules can be maybe misused and abused in some cases, or at least used in instrumental ways that might not have been expected or anticipated? Yeah, so I think one thing or one way to think about McHenry's choices. So we have, again, the fact that it's become increasingly clear that the original interpretation of the rule may indeed have been quite narrow. Um, McHenry is almost certainly sort of being advised that that is true, and he is behaving in line with that. But there's also, I think, a kind of important um, or potentially important political rationale for McHenry in acting in the way that he has, which is that the House Republican Conference is in like a pretty epic state of chaos right now. And there's definitely an argument that trying to just like maintain stability and do as little as possible until they have resolved their disputes over who should be the next speaker is politically optimal for the um, kind of short to medium term interests of the conference. The longer the um, fight over electing a new speaker drags out, the less tenable this is. But I think this illustrates really well a um, broader dynamic that we see between members of Congress and the rules in their respective chambers, which is the tendency to sort of blame the rules for um, an outcome that is like politically uh, unappetizing. So in some ways, this is like what we see in the Senate when senators blame the parliamentarian for things that they probably in many cases don't actually have the votes to do. But it's much easier to say, oh, that's the parliamentarian's faults. Like, we can't put that thing in a reconciliation bill because the parliamentarian said no. At the end of the day, if the Senate chose to do something else, they could choose to set aside those rules. They could choose to change um, those precedents. The same is true um, in this episode, that if the House chose to, the House could make a majority in the House could make changes to the powers um, that McHenry has. And I think part of what we're seeing is this decision to sort of leave power on the table, because that's, at least in the short term, the politically preferable situation. Um, but at the end of the day, there's a difference between the House being incapable of acting and the House choosing not to act. I think what we're seeing now is the House is choosing not to act. Um, they are not somehow constitutionally incapable of doing so. So all of this adds up to a pretty potentially difficult predicament. You have a speaker pro temp who declines to exercise broader a broad vision of his authority is sticking to a narrow vision at least so far meaning no legislation is moving can happen this is against the backdrop of one international crisis in israel in regards to the attacks by hamas that congress certainly feels pressure to respond to uh, arguably two because we also have ukraine happening in the background uh, and a demand for assistance there and of course, this is approaching the end of the year where we have a government shutdown on the horizon and the end of year budget authorization and appropriations requirements that are just a few weeks behind that. 
is there no way out for the House short of electing a speaker, something which it's not 100% clear where the route forward is? We, it's worth noting, as of the time of recording, the Republican caucus has, I guess, agreed to put forward Representative Scalise as their nominee, but he, so far he doesn't appear to actually have the votes to become speaker. And that's we're still in this kind of holding pattern then until the cards fall the right way. And we remember what a hard fight that was from McCarthy a few months ago. So- you know, are there any other alternative routes out from this predicament other than suffering through that what could be a long and perhaps intractable political fight to eventually arrive at a full-time speaker? Yeah. So there are sort of two things that I think could happen. One, um, as I kind of sketched out before, would be a like vote by vote, issue by issue, choice to establish precedence on what the Speaker Pro Tem's powers are. So, you know, McHenry moves to bring a very specific piece of legislation to the floor. I think more generally, another option would be to have the full House vote on making uh, McHenry an elected Speaker Pro Tem for either a defined period of time or until there is a full election for Speaker. I don't know how politically feasible that is, but as a uh, as an institutional matter, uh, the House, I think, could absolutely do that, could say, you know, McHenry is the elected Speaker pro tem for six hours, six days, six weeks. Um, and then once that happens, be on firmer footing to act- for him to exercise a much broader set of authorities um, as the Speaker. So we're almost out of time, but before we wrap up, let's, let's just get down to brass tacks. I already mentioned the government shutdown deadline, Ukraine and Israel assistance, a lot of these core issues. What is this situation likely to mean for those different cases moving forward? You know, is there is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Do we have a sense about whether they might provide the incentive to pursue an alternate solution or to actually drive the political consensus necessary to resolve the speakership permanently? Or is it still at this point very much up in the air? That's a great question. And I think I'll sort of take up the three issues you put on the table separately. So um, the issue of aid to Ukraine, um, I think it is clear that that remains quite a politically difficult lift. You saw sort of earlier in the week, some discussion of a possibility that, oh, Maybe the um, need to approve legislation providing uh, some aid to Israel would be an effective thing that you could link aid to Ukraine to and do them together. You've then seen some skepticism about that idea. I think in the case of um, the need to act on aid to Israel, there's a, at least for, as for me, um, a non-subject matter expert, but someone who is paid attention to Congress. I think there are some questions from members about how soon that action would be necessary. Um, Is that something that Congress needs to do this week, next week, in three weeks? Um, I think that is still, um, and you may know more about that than I do, I think that's still being sort of sussed out. So the degree to which um, a desire to act on aid to Israel could be an action-forcing mechanism, I think that depends on like how soon that aid seems meaningfully necessary. And this question of the government shutdown is, I think, a big looming one for two reasons. So One, it is difficult to imagine that in the absence of a permanent speaker, that House Republicans are going to be able to make meaningful efforts 
to actually resolve the overall funding picture by the middle of November, um, which then basically means that like what we're talking about in the middle of November is another continuing resolution. And maybe that's what we were talking about anyway, even if they didn't depose Kevin McCarthy, I don't know. But it certainly makes it more difficult to for them to make progress on an actual resolution to the full year of appropriations bills. And then beyond that, you just have this question about, you know, even if they can elect a speaker um, between now and then, how much running room does that speaker have in negotiations um, with the Senate and with the White House about a resolution to the overall um, government funding picture? And, you know, Kevin McCarthy, I don't I don't think Kevin McCarthy got deposed because he put a continuing resolution um, on the floor of the House. I think that was sort of a, a pretext for getting rid of him. But it's certainly where we are in this crisis certainly makes it hard to see how we get out of the question of funding the government easily. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there for now, but I suspect this may not be the last we hear of our dear speaker pro tem, Mr. McHenry. Until next time, Molly, thank you for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare to gain an access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. For more information, visit lawfaremedia.org support. This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Howell and produced by Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.